the core of that West Wing American president, few good men sort of narrative is something that's quite seductive, I think, for many of us in public service, which is that if we can all just be brave, clever and articulate, we'll be able to get through things. And actually, no, that politics doesn't work like that. It chews you up and it spits you out. And it's a brutal, brutal thing to do. And I'm never going to have a kind of like House of Cards view of politics, that it's just full of ruthless, merciless psychopaths trying to get to the top. But it is, um, it's our system breaks people. And it's, it's devastating because you see that the quality of people who go into our politics is deteriorating because who would, who would do that to themselves? Polly McKenzie is CEO at Demos, a cross-party think tank in the United Kingdom. She has also worked at the center of government within the 2010-15 coalition and run a charity focusing on money and mental health. In the current very fractious political environment, Demos looks at big challenges like wealth inequality, how to build back after COVID-19, and social protection for the most marginalized. With this in mind, we talk a lot about how to do public policy in a complex democracy, in particular, how to bring more human experience, more everyday behavior into that process. But we also go quite deep on what that means for the people who work in public service. What mindset should we be starting with? How do we set our ambitions and indeed our sense of self-worth when we can't possibly control the outcomes and and ethically probably shouldn't be trying to. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy. I usually start these in, in the same fairly straightforward place. If you meet someone socially, let's say at the pub, this being the UK, How do you explain what you do for a living? I usually start by saying that I run a charity because that quite quickly sounds virtuous and (laughs) uh, closes down the conversation because most people who ask you what you do aren't really very interested in the question. They're much more interested in talking about themselves, which is generally true about uh, all topics of conversation. If people are interested, I say we do public policy Mm -hmm. and and I, I developed this phrase originally for my daughter who is eight which is that we try and come up with ways to run the country better mm-hmm. and that but that worked for her and it works for the kind of people i i mostly meet socially i i guess i got into the habit of being quite evasive when i worked in the government from 2010 to 2015 where just saying i'm a civil servant or oh i've got a desk job was a good way of closing down a conversation which could easily end in people screaming and shouting at you about austerity. Indeed. But it seems at this point, the stuff that you're working on or, or organising work on is a fairly general interest, you know? Tech, wealth inequality, shared prosperity, you know, whichever terminology we use, this sort of stuff, people would connect with that, I would think? Um, yes, I think they do. I guess my my social circle is mostly people who are really quite involved in public policy so the people I meet outside of that will be 
uh, mums at the school gate or in the playground or people I'm talking to interacting with public services, those kind of social interactions where, sure, you could start a conversation, it wouldn't be hostile, but uh, I don't know, I think most people aren't really interested in in having a detailed conversation about public policy most of the time. Mm. I ask because I, I hear that a lot from people, that it's easier to give, a, as you say, an answer to sort of close the conversation down because people don't necessarily have a follow-up question or a, uh, a natural point of reference. I have, I had a conversation with um, my, uncle, my uncle by marriage around a public policy win that I had a very long time ago mm-hmm. around citizenship rights for Gurkhas. And we, we had campaigned in Parliament. We'd, in the end, forced the government to concede and, and veteran Gurkhas were allowed to have citizenship rights in the UK. And I was very proud of this. You know, it was one of those sort of family occasions after a funeral. And, and his view was, yeah, but it should never have happened. And I said, well, I, I agree in theory, except what you have to understand is that actually the Gurkha regiments were started to be recruited pretty early in the 18th century before modern concepts of citizenship really existed. And also at a time when the idea that Nepalese people would want in in large numbers to move to the UK would have been considered an absurdity. So it's actually quite hard to work out when it should never have happened. Uh, When should the policy have shifted? Um, And and his response was, yeah, but it never should have happened. Mm. I said, but... Yes, but as I said, 17th century, Gurkhas, <laughs> uh, modern notions of the nation state, the passport, the history of the passport. Like, um, yeah, but it should never have happened. And and I, I guess I've just, I mean, he's he's a, uh, I'm sure he won't listen to this, um, but he's a particularly <laughs> Probably not bad the target person. audience, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I had a, another brilliant conversation with him where we're talking about food waste policy. And he said, the reality is, all of this stuff about let's just abolish meat. If less food was wasted in the supermarkets, it wouldn't be a problem and the carbon emissions from meat wouldn't matter. Like that's quite a sophisticated public policy conversation, right? Like he's got some facts, some information. Actually, I know quite a bit about food waste and whilst the supermarkets can and should do more, actually there's a lot of upstream waste. There's lots of post-consumer waste. And also the scale of what's happening in supermarkets simply isn't enough Mm -hmm. to counteract the contribution of meat. But how do you start that conversation? Because, again, he's just the kind of guy, and there's lots of people who are who I've read some stuff, I know some stuff. Well, actually, I think the carbon contributions of, of food waste from supermarkets are X kilograms, and from meat it's Y kilograms. He's not interested in the conversation. Uh, it's just, yeah, but the supermarkets. Yeah, but the supermarkets. And not everybody is like that. Of course they're not. But it's actually quite difficult to have detailed public policy conversations with non-experts when you're an expert without really coming across as a dick, you know? Like, I'm cleverer than you. I know more facts than you. And it's patronising, it's rude. And and so, in a way, what I do is I try and think of it more as a journalistic uh, or a research thing where I I don't contradict I I don't try and persuade or explain because I'm what I'm trying to understand is how have how have the facts and ideas and concepts filtered through to this particular human being this particular citizen in their in their context 
because it, it's it, well it, yeah it's certainly a much better way to make friends i'm sure that's i'm sure that's true it's it's interesting to me because that isn't it's like giving parenting <laughs> advice you know every so often somebody actually asks you for their advice for your advice and there is a window and you can tell them about your special technique for like putting the baby down or mm-hmm. dealing with a tantrum but most of the time people just don't want to know and you know trying to trying to like transform the nature of the human race and our natural defensiveness is a project that is certainly larger than my lifetime i completely agree i find it interesting because that's sort of your to some extent your job description no i mean enabling some sort of public conversation on these issues is is a key it absolutely is enabling public conversation and enabling listening and empathy but that means that the worst thing you can do is trigger somebody's defensive responses. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to do because pe- people shut down and close their minds so quickly. And I, I never want to be the, the trigger for that. I want to learn and understand and work out what are the frames that might work for, for this person and where they are situated. So that if you, in the end, do choose to, to try and persuade or you're, you're providing information that's through an open door instead of just like battering on a locked one. So uh, take uh, environmental policy mm-hmm. where the Frameworks Institute, for example, has done lots of really interesting work around how do you how do you use different frames to persuade people that environment policy is good and particularly around a nationalist or a or at least a sort of parochial narrative like keep texas clean or uh let's protect the environment of cumbria one point of view says this is a great and successful way to bring a new group of people on board with the environmental agenda and an alternative way of seeing it which i you know i've heard expressed with powerful emotions is that that is capitulating to nationalist jingoistic instincts and that it does a profound disservice to the environmental movement to to surrender in that way now i'm on the former side because i'm interested in finding ways to bring people together mm-hmm. but I, I i at least understand the emotion of having to talk in that way you know it can it can feel difficult or unwelcome but I think in the end, we are better if we find ways to listen and accommodate other people's moral views, other people's values and standpoints and judgments, because in the end, it's the policy outcomes that matter. If I can walk back a few years on, the, on, the, on that point. And you went into formal politics, institutional politics, um, policymaking quite directly, I would say. I think you did a, a couple of years as a business journalist and then fairly directly into a policy yeah. role. Was it about the was it about the outcomes or was it about the subject matter? It was, it was quite a So I started well, I, I mean I started as a journalist because I, I wanted to be a writer. And and that was the path that I had kind of chosen for myself. And I, I started a sort of magazine called Property Week and I was working on tax policy, planning policy from a journalistic perspective to try and uh, and understand those. And and I realized that 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 was far more interesting to me as a as a topic of inquiry than you know who's bought what 
land or what the deals are that underpins this and how does that create structural change that incentivizes this that or the other and and th- so I, I got more and more interested in 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 policy like from a quite a wonkish mm-hmm. theoretical perspective really so I, I I'm not sure I was that interested in policy outcomes I was just interested in policy policy from an analytic perspective and I went to work for the Lib Dems because uh, I, I wanted to then become a political journalist that was my goal it was only once I'd started working there in a policy analysis role that I sort of fell in love with the idea of being a change maker of advocating of campaigning I went to Liberal Democrat Conference 2004 in Harrogate and um, Sarge Kareem then Liberal Democrat MP subsequent defected to the Conservative Party gave a speech in which he said um, this isn't the country I was born in and I want my country back and I, you know, I had that sort of surge of emotion that you get when you watch the West Wing or whatever uh, sentiment. And I thought, I want to be a political campaigner and advocate. And I want to, I'd probably watch too many West Wing episodes. But anyway, I, I got sucked in absolutely to that sense of being a change maker. But it was policy first and campaigning afterwards. That sounds almost, I mean, content neutral isn't the right word, I guess. But it doesn't sound like it was driven at the outset by a specific sort of issue or issues so much as, you know, something maybe a little broader about um, the appeal of of the process and the machinery of government? I guess I I, I was interested in the idea of public service, not in terms of being a direct civil servant or public servant, but the idea of, of, of contributing to that process of, coming up with ideas to make the country better mm-hmm. R- rather than oh you know we ha- we have to we have to abolish capitalism or we have to uh, open up the market or it, you know it, it wasn't particularly ideological uh, and i certainly i wasn't a member of the liberal democrats when i started working for them i i like i say i joined after sort of damascene conversion to the idea of just being part of a campaign movement which was probably quite a tribal instinct in a way, you know, the same way people fall in love with football teams. I think far, far more of politics is driven by that, that craving for a belonging and shared purpose than we necessarily give credit for. Mm. And a, a fairly rapid uh, succession of, of sort of specific roles and, and, and portfolios, I guess, in that world um, for <laughs> the non-UK People of the world, um, Lib Dems end up in, 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 in coalition government, so in a position to actually influence policy as opposed to throwing stones from the, the outside. Uh, and I mean, the details of that are interesting to me, but I'm, I'm, for me, the, the real sort of hinge point that jumps out is, of course, 2015 when that ends, in a sense, the political calculus, the political situation changes dramatically and you find yourself out of, of policymaking by choice, of course. What? Not by choice. Not by choice. Well, <laughs> certainly who no, was... No, was rudely evicted by the voters. Like, you know, the Liberal Democrats suffered a crushing defeat and my job was abolished overnight. So, you know, let's not be, let's not be too uh, generous about, about the choices <laughs> that I made. Sure. But you, you, the choice was, I guess, then to rather than looking for another role in that same sort of, of space, you stepped um, a little bit out of that world, right? Actually, the first the first thing I did 
was uh, help set up a new political party, right? Uh, the Women's Equality Party, which was established by Sandy Toxvig, a, a broadcaster and feminist, and and a journalist, Catherine Mayer. Uh, and I, I threw myself into that for three months, kind of as my rebound boyfriend, really. <laughs> as a way to work 70 hours a week uh, in the way that I had been to just, I guess, not think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, But that was a really, a really fascinating experience, partly, you know, because I, I, I was really inspired by the concept they'd come up with, which was a, a cross-party political party that was trying to do politics in a completely different way and turn feminism into a kind of hygiene factor for all the political parties so that equality was was just baked into every party's political agenda. And that, that was really interesting to me. But it was also interesting, having gone from working in government, you know, where there's people as far as the eye can see, to founding an organisation with no one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was the first person to write us a business plan, first person to bring in a single pound of money really to go into the bank account to launch a membership scheme to recruit staff and all of that because in politics especially you're an advisor you have no executive responsibility you just have opinions Mm -hmm. and then to go into a role I was the founder was quite uh, radical and dramatic as an experience to have that executive responsibility even though like and I wasn't responsible for the idea that was somebody else's idea. I was in. I was there to operationalize it. In a way, I was a kind of micro civil service for this new political party, and that was really exciting. And it was actually that that led me into the conversation with Martin Lewis, um, the kind of a money saving expert, kind of internet uh, money guru, and philanthropist uh, around an idea that he'd had four years previously, but never been able to get the rubber to hit the road because he was too busy doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. He said, "Hang on, you're." You, you understand politics and you've got now you're a founder you know about founding can you found this thing for me i, I i've said i'm going to give it four million pounds but like what should i do how do i make it make a difference and so that was the challenge that he set me was to work out around this this problem he'd identified which is this this tangled knot of problems associated with the links between financial difficulties and mental health problems, where the one causes the other and then they cause each other back again and you get stuck in a spiral. And he'd identified that in in the work he did giving people financial information and advice. And he wanted a, a charity that would solve the problems, that would design policy and product solutions mm-hmm. to improve people's lives, improve the financial outcomes of people with mental health problems and the mental health outcomes of people with financial difficulties. And that was exciting to then think through, okay, what's your what's your theory of change? And I did not come across the phrase theory of change until I was interviewing somebody for one of the jobs that I hired. So four months in, somebody said, what's your theory of change? And I said, that's an, my, my what? That's what, an excellent the, question. The, what's the theory of change? I, I, I sort of hate bureaucracy and all of this like finagling around, you know, because... I guess in politics, I was surrounded by people who knew exactly what the theory of change was. Make yourself popular, get elected, do shit. So suddenly you go into the, the third sector and, and people are trying to actually articulate quite complicated thoughts in order to bring people on board for a strategy. So it's only latterly that I've become uh, persuaded that writing down your theory of change is a thing worth doing rather than just strategic posturing. But um, anyway... So, uh, but what I had developed was a theory of change, a, a belief that 
particularly as the financial services market was being catastrophically disrupted by financial technology, there was an opportunity to rebuild services to enable them to be fit for purpose for consumers with mental health problems. You know, it's a it's a sort of standard thing we say is one in four of us has mental health problems. Well, if one in four of us has a mental health problem, not in our lifetime, at any one point, one in four of us has a mental health problem. Well, then providing services to your customers with mental health problems is not a niche issue. It's one in four, right? It's like, it's half as big as providing services to men, you know, like it's massive. And yet for everybody, oh, it's a specialist function. It's a specialist team. And we just wanted to get that fundamental point that this is mainstream. And in fact, if you're dealing with consumers in financial difficulties, it's more likely they have a mental health problem than that they don't. And so you cannot think of this as niche. It is mainstream. If you mainstream it, if you design with your vulnerable consumers in mind, you will actually design products and services and policies that are more effective for everybody. You speak about that quite um, forcefully and, and quite passionately. But was it tough going from a very sort of generalist brief to a very specific issue? I mean, in terms of a theory of change, it's it's, it's very it's tightly defined and it's good and it meets the criteria there. But you're, it seems like you're going from one extreme to the other, no? From um, sort of centre of government yeah, to everything totally, totally. to very specific. You know, like my name's Polly, so I like to think that is normative determinism, that I am a bit of a polymath and I'm interested <laughs> in everything. Sure. And I'd, I'd, I'd done, yeah, absolutely, I'd done that for seven years was to be the person who had a, a sort of a, a good knowledge of everything. Um, and so to go and to be a deep expert on one topic was quite not just practically difficult but emotionally difficult because it felt like I was sort of surrendering but all the career advice when I got was leaving government was you need to choose a thing what but yeah but what job do you want to do I can do anything is a rubbish answer you'll never get a job except people don't like that no (laughs) except people like me I love people like that but you know I'm weird so and I spoke to a guy uh, a guy called Paul Kirby who who I'd worked with in government who'd then gone back to KPMG and he said you can be a polymath in a in a in a series uh, construct. It doesn't have to be in parallel. As in, you can do money and mental health. Do that for three years, then go and do housing for three years, and then go and you know use your transferable skills as a leader and go and I don't know do space policy. And and that crystallized it for me and made me able to go. Actually, yeah, this is fine. I'm going to learn a huge amount. This is a serious problem which needs real solutions where there's that perfect mix of problem, a change, a change thing that you can kind of pedal into and also a, you know, a high profile leader and the money and resources to be able to make a difference. And I can learn something from, from focus that I can then take to other topics just because I'm focusing on this now doesn't mean that is the rest of my professional career. I don't need to spend 40 years on this Mm. though, you know, it, it, it would still be a worthwhile life to spend 40 years on that, right? Because you're talking about um, 9 million people every year in the UK who, I think it's 9 million, it sounds absurd, but from recollection, it's it's correct. 9 million people who think about killing themselves every year because of financial difficulties. It, that's a big problem. If you could solve that problem, I think you would, you would die happy. I, 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 there's also an important thing for me was learning about not um not being so narcissistic 
you know, not indulging that fantasy that, hey, I'm a clever person. It's my somehow my responsibility to solve all the problems of the world. Because actually, you're way better focusing on, like, I'm just going to fix this one thing. And, you know, the world doesn't need me quite as much as I might like to believe. Mm. You, you described 2015 as a, as a crushing defeat, which I guess objectively it was, electorally speaking. Was that true for you as well? Is that something that felt personal in a way? Um, I, I mean, enormously personal, but also personal for someone who I uh, uh, loved and was absolutely committed to mm-hmm. in, in the name of, you know, Nick Clegg and, and up to a point, the party as well. But but him, I think he is a, a great man, a, a, a talented leader who was put through hell because he chose to serve. And I, I, I was, I was crushed for me, but I was crushed for him. And, and in a way that I, you know, I'll probably never kind of properly recover from. So in the, the morning after the election results, uh, we were waiting for Nick to come down from Sheffield and went to Lib Dem HQ and Paddy Ashton was there. And I think he spoke for a lot of us when he said, who, who would ever put the country ahead of partisan interest again? Mm. And, and and the injustice of that, I think, went went really deep because, you know, I mean, there's plenty of mistakes that Nick made, that I made, that the coalition, you know, but the, the we did what we thought was best for the country. We provi- helped to provide strong, stable government, which was followed for the next five years by completely incompetent charlatan government. So, you know, you look back and you think, actually, the coalition, you know, it, had its faults, but it was it was a decent, capable government. Mm-hmm. And we did that, and we sacrificed a vast amount of political capital to do what what well, what I continue to believe was right. But even those who disagree that it was the right judgment, I think, should at least accept that it was done with the best of intentions. Mm. You know, those who suggest that Nick Clegg somehow went into it for a ministerial car, like, delusional. So that that was gutting, and I guess um, it 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 made me feel that you know the you know Aaron Sorkin was a fraud, <laughs> and of course that's not news. Everyone knows that Aaron Sorkin's a fraud and a bit funny about women and all sorts of things. I was and, say. <laughs> and one should never be sedu- one should never be seduced by fiction. But um, I guess that sense that that at the at the core of that West Wing American president, few good men sort of narrative is something that's quite seductive, I think, for many of us in public service, which is that if we can all just be brave, clever and articulate, we'll be able to get through things. And actually, no, that politics doesn't work like that. It chews you up and it spits you out. And it's a brutal, brutal thing to do. And almost everybody who goes into it goes into it to try and make life better for other people and they end up taking extraordinary personal pain as a result you know it and i'm never going to have a kind of like house of cards view of politics that it's just full of ruthless merciless psychopaths trying to get to the top but it is um it's this our system breaks people and it uh, it is a problem and i i don't think that 
I will ever be able to make any meaningful contribution to changing that. And it's it's devastating because you see that the quality of people who go into our politics is deteriorating because who would who would do that to themselves? You know, I've got this role which is just outside the danger zone, I think, within politics. So I get to, I get to play and pretend that that I'm still involved in Westminster and you know and we have impact there's no question at demos um but we don't we don't put ourselves in the firing line in the way that you know especially women in frontline politics do and that keeps me safe and it keeps me sane and i i think it's it's sad to see where we've got to I, and, and a lot of those feelings i would date from 2015 in that sense that it doesn't matter what you do um nobody will ever be grateful so you might as well do the right thing, right? Because if nobody <laughs> once 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 you've dealt with the grief mm. and you've let it go and you can stop being angry about that anymore, which I think I have got to, then just do what you think is right and and be accountable to yourself for it. Was it easier that I sort of get the sense that it would have been not a break because I'm sure it was it was very difficult in its own ways, but doing something a bit more technical, a bit more focused would have provided some space to recover in a way from that experience or process that experience. No question. I mean, nothing has the same pressure as politics. And Mm. I know almost everybody, former colleagues who's left politics has either, uh, masochistic desire to get back in Mm. or much more likely just a sense that life will never be at that pace and it requires it requires real adjustment you know I I know you know press officer type roles who went from I guess responding to five press inquiries a day to spending a month negotiating one press release within a big corporate you know like you know, when you work in politics, you just something happens. You decide what you're doing about it, and you move on to the next thing. And certainly, nothing in my experience moves at the same pace. And I, I continue to have actually, it's not my problem. I continue to have colleagues who struggle with the pace at which I want to move, where I think I'm going slowly, and they're like, we can't we can't do this much we can't I, I can't I can't write I can't write a thousand words in an hour it, but it's just because in politics you have to and so the only people who are in it who are the people who in who in fact thrive on working at that pace and it's it's actually not healthy mm. so you know I, I make a conscious effort to slow down and that might sound sort of patronizing it's not patronizing because when you do slow down you can do better work so it's a good discipline for me to have to to explore with colleagues but nevertheless it is my constant feedback that I get and it's it's what happens if you spend your your formative years um in in politics that moves at the pace it does you use the word narcissism at one point oh I'm always diagnosing myself with a whole range of mental disorders well I don't want to traffic in stereotypes about who goes into politics of course but there's something seductive about the pace of that, right? Like that becomes part of your image of yourself. Um, and it must require some adjustment to revise your self-image if, if worth is measured by, you know, by that yardstick. 
yeah, absolutely. You start to have to be the kind of person who writes down your theory of change. And yeah, but and and, and try to actually measure and consider the impact you're having hmm. instead of just charging charging forward and having 73,000 unread emails in your inbox. You know, of course, I, I think most of the best people are continually revising their view of themselves and their capabilities and, you know, seeking that journey of self-understanding and improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and politics isn't something that is kind to that. You know, you have to be self-confident quick moving and so you i guess you yeah you prop up your ego with a sense that that's the best way to be without actually questioning whether it is i i had a colleague when i first started in number 10 a civil servant who transitioned from the brown administration who described the kind of people who ended up working in number 10 as a unique combination of ambition talent and self-loathing um and it stuck with me because there is that, it's like in a way the, the, the ambition is, is the, the flip side of the self-loathing mm. is you're constantly trying to prove yourself and live up to your talent. You, people have told you, you know, you're a smart person and we live in a world that sort of massively values these slightly esoteric academic skills. And, and so you're supposed to be a person who's going to make a dent in the world. And it's really hard to make a dent in the world. So you constantly feel like you're not quite good enough. And so you work harder and harder and harder and eventually you burn out and go and do something, whatever, sensible in a in the Department of Eggs or something. Is, this, is that a uh, turn of phrase? <laughs> One of these uh, no, English no, turns of phrase I'm not familiar with? <laughs> No, no, it's not. No, um, why do I think of eggs? Is because it was a sort of thought example within uh, Francis Maud when he did a the cabinet office minister for like government efficiency of of how the the public choice dynamics operate within departments and why they continually get bid bigger is that there had been this big salmonella outbreak in the eighties. And so the egg team within DEFRA had had to grow suddenly as a crisis response mm -hmm. to 30 people or something dealing with egg policy. But because the way uh, recruitment and retention and promotion work within the civil service, if you're the manager of 30 people, mm. all of the incentives encourage you to keep the 30 people because it helps you to score in the top boxes. Yeah. And so the last thing anybody who's the director general of eggs is going to do is downsize their team, even though their team doesn't need to be 30 anymore. And so it was a worked example of, um, of, of, of how you can, how you need to shift the incentives if you want to create structural efficiency. And, and so therefore in my mind, yeah, the egg team is just a bloated group of 30 people with nothing to do. It, it was curiously specific. I thought there must be some, some point of reference for that. Let's, let's talk about Demos then, that being your job for the last several years and, and, and going forward. Looking at the list of stuff that you're working on, it's very striking that it's, it's a massive public policy challenges on which there is no clear way forward and there are strong opinions and also, not unrelatedly, the machinery of government is singularly struggling to grapple with. Why this choice of issues? Is there's, why are they so difficult to handle within sort of traditional policy making 
mechanisms. What is it that requires an outside institutional setup to to develop ways forward? Well, I guess the first and simple answer to that is the difficult stuff. Mm. If it was easy, the civil servants would just figure it out, implement it, and move on. So it's not therefore a surprise that think tanks in general are working to examine and understand the more wicked, the more intractable, and the more complex problems. I like to think that think tanks perform a kind of strategy function for a nation because politicians never have any time and they don't have any intellectual freedom either because if they dare to say anything controversial, it gets them in trouble. Academics have the freedom to say something but they're not very well connected to Westminster and they also move at a glacial pace. So think tanks can act as a bridge, really, to take research and innovation and theory and find a way to translate that into practice in a way that's more useful to policymakers and and, and political leaders. We at Demos have consistently been three things over the last 20 27 years since we were founded. It, it first of all is cross-party. So Demos had a period where it was basically the, the preeminent or possibly the second most preeminent think tank under the Labour government. But actually one of the reasons why Demos was powerful and influential at that time was because it was comfortable bringing in analysis and thought leadership from on traditional issues that had been seen of as owned by the right. So exploration of family values and parenting, for example, choice in public services, which Demos brought in and made those ideas uh, acceptable to to a left-wing government as well. We've also always been interested in, when we were founded, the first slogan was something like radical solutions to long-term problems or something, always very forward-leaning in that we're much more likely to suggest that there ought to be, you know, personal budgets for the whole of the health system than to suggest there ought to be a change to, you know, widget policy 47A. Um, and, and so, you know, there are there are think tanks which are much better at the, the micro detail of policy and ensuring that, you know, really small technical things are, are results, sometimes to quite profound effect. And that's what we were doing at Money and Mental Health was thinking about, you know, the wording of a letter that is sent before the bailiffs are allowed to send to go around. Right. The really important. But but at Demos, we're more about the kind of the painting and the broad brush images and direction of travel. But the third thing we've always been invested in is really understanding the lived experience of citizens and using that to inform and design public policy. So, you know, it it continues to be a travesty that people with disabilities are not involved systematically in policy design for people with disabilities. You know, the entire entire shift under Labour and then the Conservatives of disability benefits from what was called incapacity benefit to employment support allowance, the shift from what was called disability living allowance to personal independence payment. All of that happened with only trivial engagement from people with disabilities instead of them being absolutely the forefront of the entire design. You know, Demos wrote a paper in 2002, 2003, advocating for a whole systems approach to how you include people and and the civil servants sort of do their best of like oh yeah look we'll have a little focus group or we'll invite we'll invite mm-hmm. representative bodies to come in but the idea of really 
enabling people to get involved in the full process is really quite alien to expert civil servants who are much better at designing policies for the average human than for the humans who are actually involved in the system that they're designing for. And, and Demos has always done that. In the last five or six years, what we've been focusing on is building new technologies that enable us to do that much more and at scale. So we don't think of ourselves as having vertical specialisms like, oh, we're really good at housing, climate change and tax policy. What we're really great at is a process of it, of understanding public opinion through social media mapping and polling, engaging with the public through deliberation, through focus groups, through interviews, through ethnography, through survey tools. We, we use an interactive survey tool called Polis, which allows people to contribute their own questions that then get answered by the crowd as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then doing co-design of policy outcomes as well. And then not only do we do that end-to-end process, we then advocate for others, including the government, to do that end-to-end process so that you can build both better quality policy and more process legitimacy. But it's only worth doing that on complicated stuff, right, where you where you really do need to understand lived experience, take the public with you on a journey. You know, if you want a welfare system that has sustainable public support for the next 25 years, it needs to be co-designed by the public. Like, it just, it just needs to be. I, I've got my own view about exactly what the welfare system should be, but I'm, I'm probably wrong because these are not, the, the simple way of thinking about it, there's two kinds of decisions, right? Two kinds of questions. The first question is a, a discovery question, like what's the quickest way to the park? There's a factual answer to that. What kind of carpet should we put down? It, there is no, there's no correct answer. The only answer that matters is the one we can agree on. And, and in a democracy, a policy wonky experts have categorized way too many in the the factual answer to these things and excluded people from the process. When it comes to a welfare system, sure, there's plenty of facts that you need to put into it. Mm -hmm. But what matters is what can we agree on? Us wonky weirdos have to actually surrender that it's much more important to build a process of collaboration with the public than to get a supposedly right answer that your particular ideology dictates to you is correct. What's a good outcome for you then, um, without talking theories of change, although I would love that. Um, you know, when you look back over the last couple of years, like what, what, what would you view as sort of a satisfying or, or productive outcome to that process? What does your gut say was a, was a, a successful a success story there? So I guess we're looking for two kinds of it. Been through a process of collaborative policy design we then want to advocate for those policies. We continue to advocate for more personal budgets for people with long-term health conditions because we think that giving people agency enables better outcomes. And the evidence is pretty much behind us Mm -hmm. on that. We've done a whole load of work about how you might fill the tax gap uh, that is emerging between the public services people want and the taxes they are currently paying. And... And that tells us that that people are willing to pay more taxes to fill that gap, but only if it's part of end-to-end reforms in the tax system Mm -hmm. to to ensure the poorest don't pay. We know that people are extremely uh, against uh, taxes on family homes. And I think people are wrong about that. But again, I, I surrender. 
it's a it's an emotional trigger for for British people in particular around around inheritance taxes. So like that, it's much better to build a tax system we can we can sustain public consent for. And so we've got a whole set of of individual proposals about tax, but we're also looking for a I guess a more meta level impact. I feel like I've got two enemies. The first are the populists who make up nonsense and scream and shout at one another. And at the other end are the wonks who think that all policy is about spreadsheets instead of about humans and and who want to file every single decision as a discovery question, that there is a correct piece of infrastructure to build, that there's a correct way to have a welfare system, a correct kind of inheritance tax. Like there just isn't. And, and we need to plot a course between those two pathways that legitimize individual human experience, human behavior, because, you know, you can't, Miss Trunchbull in Matilda says she'd much rather have a school without the humans, right? I think way too many policy people want a policy without the humans. It, it's just not going to happen. It's the same thing in financial services. Everybody wants, they want these average consumers. Well, do you know what? There aren't any average consumers. What you've got is a whole bunch of people, all of whom are weird and and peculiar and special and different. And you, you there is no one size fits all. So, and I think that is how we defeat populism is by finding a way to legitimize experience and humanity in public policy. And and I, I, Demos, I think, is the best think tank at doing that. You know, we, over the course of our, well, however many years it is, history, you know, we've published on sleep and we've published on love and we've published on the the social networks of people who are unemployed. And we have written about food and we've written about motherhood. And, you know, we're interested in whole human beings. And I would like to see more people adopt that method of policymaking to understand lived experience when you're designing policy for people. Um, you know, the universe, the whole of our welfare reforms at the moment are predicated on a complete misunderstanding of the lives led by the majority of the people who are claiming those benefits. And that that just should not happen. Mm. And and then crucially, deliberation is, is a part of that. There was this uh, a sort of wonkish approach and perhaps uh, Gordon Brown's a really good example of doing this. He wanted to put more money into the healthcare system. Instead of just saying, I'm going to put more money into the healthcare system, he asked an expert, Derek Wanless, can you advise me on how we might increase the amount of money in the health system? Derek Wanless went away for 18 months, came back and said, well, you could, you know, put up taxes and put more money into the health system. Boom, he did it. The decision was legitimized by expert advice. Mm -hmm. And we saw that on tuition fees. We see that across, we saw that across the board, that that's what you do when you got stuck. Ask an expert and then you just say, oh, well, I'm doing this because the expert said it's right. I want us to adopt, I want us to adopt an entirely different approach Mm -hmm. to what happens when politicians get stuck. When you get stuck, you don't ask an expert. It is up to a point true that people have had enough of them. You ask the people and the process the, the process of public involvement is a way to improve legitimacy. There's obviously some tension between what you just said and your earlier experience in that. Oh, yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask if you uh, had, had, had advice or, or, or pointers for your kind of younger self. Um, and what I'm hearing is not a repudiation of that, but certainly a, a, a very different point of view on how policy can and should be made. So, you know, I'm somebody who, who's uh, clever. 
I guess, you know, I always got A's and I went to a good university and I got a first and, and I always assumed for way too long that, that being clever was the solution Mm -hmm. to most problems that the answer is, Oh, eventually I shall put a wet towel on my head and figure out the answer. And, and I guess it's recognizing that being right is much less important than being listened to mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, and it, once you can let go of believing that cleverness is going to puzzle out the problem, you can find ways to bring people people with you. But it does require a kind of process of surrender and a, and a re a reappraisal of that view that, 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 yeah, the clever people will solve all of our problems for us because in the end, um, the, the solutions only work if people have been involved in designing them. And you learn that I think as a, as a leader of, of an organization, I could design a best strategy, best theory of change for demos, impose it on my 20 staff. And even at that microscopic level of 20 people, it won't really work because actually what we need to do is design it together. And even if, it never is true, right? But even if that process of co-design came up with the exact same answer that I would have come up with on my own, it's still better. It's worth the time because it will just be much, much more effective. And I, 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 I think just accepting that common endeavor requires a whole different set of processes is, is fundamental to my my view of of policymaking. Mm. I, th- I think lots of people after 2015, but then also after the Brexit referendum, people on the sort of like the liberal progressive, however they might describe themselves. And, and the same happened in America, you know, with Trump had that sense of, wow, like we were wrong about everything. Mm. Wow. Like, oh God, you know, we forgot about poor people. We and and then there's been then a division, a group of people who have who have gone back to their wonkish ways and said, uh, the the problem is the people. Actually, I don't really like people. We just need to sort of do do the right thing by people and and try and kind of shut them out of our democracy, really. And then another group who have almost gone native pro populism of just going, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, we can't have any immigrants after all. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. I I, I think there's a third way which is to say people have bad instincts or instincts that I as a liberal or progressive might think are bad, but they also have good instincts. And actually a process of deliberation, of participation, of engagement brings out the best in people and creates policy that we can all get behind that's much, much more sustainable. We shouldn't give up on people. We shouldn't shut them out, but we shouldn't only listen to the, their most angry instincts. We should also find ways to encourage people to be thoughtful and present and collaborative and empathetic. And and that the expert imposition of what's best for people is not the way to build empathy. It's the way to drive anger and, and resentment. Well, that takes us back to where we started. Yeah, in terms of absolutely. Parenting Never advice. give parenting advice. <laughs> okay, noted. You are listening to One Step Forward. 
We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.